Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. In this episode, we're headed back to Harcourt to talk to another arm of the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. This time, we're talking to the Orchard Keepers. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jarrah Country, the home of the Jajarurung. I give thanks to them and honour Elders past and present. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Salt. Salt. of the earth. Salt. 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 Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So a quick recap for those who missed the last episode. The farming cooperative is based on Jarrah country right at the foot of Lianganook or Mount Alexander. Katie Finlay, who featured in the last episode of Saltgrass, took over the family farm from her parents and she and her husband Hugh ran the orchard for several decades. A couple of years ago, they reached an age where they had to make some tough decisions about whether to continue to work as farmers and what to do with the property if they needed to step back. After much thought, they came to the idea that they could share their land with young or emerging farmers who didn't have land and needed a chance to give farming a go. I highly recommend that you listen to the last episode with Katie to hear more about the whole process and how the cooperative has been set up. It now includes an Indigenous plant nursery, a dairy, vegetable growers and, of course, several businesses surrounding the orchard. Katie and her family are still active on the farm. They run a fruit tree nursery and also run Grow Great Fruit, which is an online course to help people aptly enough grow great fruit. The mature trees that make up the orchards Katie and her family used to run include over 4,000 trees with over 120 varieties of stone and palm fruit, including cherries, apricots, peaches, nectarines, plums, apples and pears. Now the orchard keepers were not the first to take on the orchard after Katie and Hugh decided to step back. The first person who did that was Ant, who you might remember from a conversation I had with him and Katie back in season one of Saltgrass. And you can hear that episode and the one with Katie from last week on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So the first half of this episode is audio I collected when I went out to the farm to interview them in late 2022. We just had a spring of major floods right across Australia and much of our region was underwater in ways we hadn't seen in about 10 years. The strain of trying to take over and run an agricultural business in that context was already showing. And it turns out that soon after we spoke, they had to make the very hard decision to cut short their lease and close up shop. So I went back and had a chat with them earlier this year, three or four months after that first conversation, and Katie joined us to discuss what their experience was like and what factors worked and what didn't in terms of the business model. And as you'll know from the last episode, the business model is actually really what I'm interested in about all of these farming enterprises in the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative, because it's all really a grand experiment in how we can encourage new generations of farmers to have a go, build their skills and get a start on the land when the land is actually oftentimes much too expensive for people to purchase to start on. And so this idea of leasing the land for people helps both 
the older generation of farmers who are in semi-retirement and also the young farmers who need somewhere to just make a start. And all of that comes back to these ideas around local food growing, food sovereignty and a community's ability to have some food security in a climate insecure future. So that's all the reasons why this cooperative is really interesting to me and why it's relevant to saltgrass. And the climate crisis is depressing enough. We get bad news and frustrating news all the time. And this episode goes to air when the Northern Hemisphere is in the middle of the hottest and scariest summers we've ever seen or documented. There's massive heat waves, there's flooding right across so many continents. And it makes me quite nervous for what the summer yet to arrive here in Australia might be like this year. And generally I try to share stories on this show that are grounded and relatable and positive and hopeful and all the good stuff because there's so much bad news around climate and I don't want to make anyone super depressed. <laughs> and I feel like people need to have hope. But the truth of the matter is that not all attempts will succeed. And in this case, I think that the grand experiment that is this farming cooperative is a really important one to document whether they succeed or whether they fail. And it's really important to have these conversations about why either of those outcomes might have happened. And what everyone in the cooperative is trying to do is reimagine how food and farming and land management can happen. They are using organic and regenerative practices and as you'll hear across all of the episodes about the co-op, these people are not just farmers, they're also passionate advocates for climate action, they're visionaries and committed activists in their own way through the work they do on and in the soil and also in the work they do outside of the farm. So you're going to hear the orchard keepers refer to this mindset several times through the episode today, but to really show you how real that element is of the equation for them, this is a quote from their website. We're driven by a shared commitment to justice, solidarity and care. We keep principles of food sovereignty, food democracy, adaptation to ecologies and regenerative farming close to our hearts. We believe everyone should have access to good, healthy food and we're excited to put that belief into practice. We are always looking for ways and make opportunities to bring more justice, more joy to the world around us. We aim to be transparent in all that we do in growing beautiful, healthy food, connecting as closely as possible with the people who buy our fruit, all while looking after each other and this special place. This is Johan and Ingrid talking about how they came to take on the orchard a couple of years ago. I was a customer of Ant CSA last two years of his three years and I had sort of a few times but reaching out and say oh I could come and help one day a week or something like that and when I saw the advertising for the lease of the orchard I thought oh that looks great oh but it's too early I've got two young kids not gonna work <laughs> not now so I've parked it for a bit and then talked a bit to Alex about it and she was like oh yeah it's a shame and I talked to a friend, Terry, at the pub around Christmas time, and I said, oh, tell me more, tell me more. So I talked to Alex and said, oh, yeah, there's three of us, let's go for it. Oh, maybe let's find more people. And then we thought about Ingrid quite quickly. <laughs> We're part of the same neighbourhood. Yeah. I think Alex reached out and she did some good work convincing her. Working as a collective is something I've done in the past quite a lot, and Alex has done the same too. I worked like... 10 years in a workers' cooperative doing renewable energy stuff, but also mainly around political activism. 
around social justice or climate justice. Mm. So it's kind of natural for us to work as a collective, yeah. Yeah, well, we had to put it together an application, didn't we? Yeah. So Alex, Johan and Terry actually, you guys wrote the application and then I had a look at the application and was like, okay, can I do this? <laughs> it, was, it was a big decision, yeah. Had any of you run an orchard before? Mm, not really. I'd spent a bit of time here, but like seven years ago when I first moved to Castlemaine and I did sell some of Katie and Hughes' fruit at the Wesley Hill Market, so that was how I knew about this property. And I did a bit of fruit thinning for them and a bit of pruning. But yeah, some of us come from farming backgrounds. Like my parents had a dairy farm and Alex's parents had a sheep and cropping farm, I think. So I think we went in it knowing that farming is hard work. <laughs> and you'd done a little bit of farming. Had, had yeah, you? maybe helping like small vegetable growers, a bit like gung-ho. And can I ask why you wanted to take it on? I'm assuming it's not a financial career choice. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not financial. Yeah. Partly it's like it's an opportunity, right, to take the lease of an orchard, run it for three years and doesn't impact your life as much as the idea of maybe potentially buying the land or investing and having a whole 20-year commitment farming yeah is quite daunting so it's something I think a little bit about and then put it away but when something like that came up it was like oh yeah and I've always been interested in food growing and politically how we do that how we do it better how do we do it maybe as a community or I think when I was reflecting on whether I should do this project or not in terms of farming it is a low risk and so for us, <laughs> it is a great opportunity for us to try out farming. And for me, my background's in nutrition. I'm a dietitian and I've worked in community development and food system stuff for probably 15 or 20 years, I guess. And I've worked in local government, not-for-profit, all of those organisations. And we work loosely with farmers and we kind of know that farmers are having a hard time, but we continue to talk about how we're going to secure our food systems and that sort of thing. And I guess for me, it's about yeah, farmers are kind of the bottleneck. If we don't have farmers, we actually don't have a local food system. It was an opportunity to understand that from a farmer's perspective and walk in their shoes for a bit. And also to make sure that this farm keeps going as well. This farm's pretty unique in this area. There's a lot of apples and pears, but in terms of stone fruit, there's nothing else around. And there's not many organic orchards around Castlemaine either. So, yeah, just trying to work out a way that we can continue this farm yeah and being part of something that is trying new ways is really appealing to me mm. you were accepted and brought in to take over from Ant, mm. and there was a handover period before he left you alone with all the trees mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. what were the early days like for you taking that on what was the learning curve like well, I should say too, when I started, I had an eight-month-old. <laughs> so that was kind of the really tricky part for me joining was like, we're really keen and we really want to do this, but is it possible with young kids? We often would be starting a job and then we get a call and we have to go <laughs> and pick up our kids. So I just want to say that that was a big challenge for, I think, the three of us. Yeah. So you all had families yeah. and then you take on this brand new enterprise. <laughs> it's massive. Yeah. yeah, I know. Like a challenge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I guess it was the early days where looking at us and working out how we're going to work together and also doing the administrative task about what kind of business. So we decided to be a partnership 
partly because there was less cumbersome in terms of paperwork and there's more flexible or more attractive in terms of decision making as well. We were having weekly meetings at the start with Katie yeah. and Hugh where we would sit down and talk about things and I remember this time last year Katie and Hugh were sort of saying okay well we had no idea really what spring looked like and we've kind of been busy pruning and busy doing things but I think one day they kind of sat down and said, you just need to move along a little bit, trying to get the message across to us that spring is really busy. And it is, and it was really busy last year. There's just so many competing tasks. And I think when we first started, it was mostly just pruning. So you can arrive and we all were pretty confident pruners after a few months, but then spring comes and there's slashing and spraying and putting out compost and netting. And so- Irrigation maintenance, and lots of maintenance tasks. So, mm. yeah, so that's yeah. Certainly, there's ten or twenty tasks to do before the fruit arrives. Ideally, mm. so in those early days, I would say Terry and Johan put in a lot of hours on the farm. Alex was focusing a lot on doing the website and a whole lot of com stuff, and I was sort of doing what I could with the young kid. And yeah, but yeah, spring definitely ramped up, and we had to really shift up a level last year. I would say, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then the fruit arrives and it's yeah, exciting <laughs> in December. <laughs> yeah. It was a little bit, it was quite a bad season for stone fruit and even for cherries. Mm. So we had like 5 kilos and 10 kilos and 100 kilo of cherries. And then the apricots arrived and then we had 500 kilo on one ton of apricots. So then it started to, not panicking, but it's a bit stressful. <laughs> yeah, what do I do with that fruit? You know, <laughs> because we had yeah, the CSA yeah. or we just working it out. We had a rough plan about where the fruit would go, but it was still, yeah a learning curve yeah. every time when something would be yeah, yeah different. With that many different varieties and types of fruit it's constantly shifting and each year the seasons dictate when things fruit and flower a little bit. No two years are going to be the same. We do have records like 10, 10 or 15 years record of flowering date or harvest date and quantities so you can actually and now you can see the fruit has set I thought we can be pretty confident. It's hard to evaluate how many kilos, but you you get a good idea of how much fruit you're going to get. What do you do with all the fruit? Well, our priority last year, and it will absolutely be again this year, is we run a community-supported agriculture membership. So last year we had 80 CSA members, and this year we will have 60, and they will get the primo fruit. And last year we sent some plums to the wholesale market in Melbourne, and we were also regulars at the Wednesday market in Castlemaine. We're not going to have as much fruit this year, unfortunately. We're still really deciding what our distribution will be. It's sort of hard to know. It depends on how much fruit we end up getting in reality. Yeah. Let's talk about this season. It's been so wet. We've had massive floods right across the state. Is that what has impacted your expected fruit yield or are there other factors? Early spring rain and dampness meant we had a lot of disease when the flowers were coming out and the bees didn't come out as much as they would mm. want to come so we didn't get fruit set on apricots a bit low on plums as well low on pears apples a mix the early cherries look good and then the late cherries there's very little fruit so that that's directly linked to the heavy rain that we got when they were in flowers so is it organic orchard we, we are permitted to, to some spraying which is a preventative spray against you know 
the thing is based diseases and we just do our best and it's quite nerve-wracking <laughs> I've been doing a bit and you're sort of playing a game with the weather and just hoping you can kind of stop more full-on outbreaks because it's kind of once it's there and takes off it can spread as we saw particularly our apricots this year within a day or two it just goes down a row mm. and wipes out a crop just very challenging in terms of thinking about the kind of mental anxieties farmers deal with over the season yeah. <laughs> and I think for fruit growing particularly spring you can see certain things emerging but others you don't know until you're a lot closer and whether or not it's going to be any good. Mm. So this is Brian. He came to the Orchard Keepers after they had already been running for about a year. So I basically had been a CSA subscriber, getting the weekly box, enjoying it very much for the year while these guys were taking over the reins. And then I saw a call out for more members and I was just coming off the back of, I'd sort of semi-retired from my usual job as an academic in media and communications in a Melbourne university and was looking for something I guess local and something different I think I thought I was going to have a bit of a break though (laughs) before I had to jump in but it just seemed such a great opportunity just seemed too good to pass up if I could get in so (laughs) so I did a mixed thing of wrote a studious email (laughs) trying to you know think who am I what are the common interests but probably more importantly came out to help pick the last of the peers and just get to meet these guys and have a chat and see if we were a good mix, I guess. (laughs) I'm sure personalities play a large part, so you really need to make sure you feel like you're going to get on with people. Yes, I think that's essential. And and also part of my story is like quite a few of the collective. I've also got young kids, 11 and 6, and yeah, so it needed to kind of work with that. But also I had related big picture motivations in terms of ideas around food sovereignty you know we're in a moment of transition different forms of long-term ecological and maybe industrial collapse things are changing but it's it's kind of hard you know what label to apply to yourself I saw one the other day I really liked I'm a doomer optimist (laughs) Um, in the sense of it's bad but I think there's things we should be doing and this is things I can do for me in terms of learning and getting involved in something I've never been involved with. I've grown food at home but not done any farming at all or lived on farms. I can do it for me, I can do it for my kids, I can do it for the community, the bioregion where I'm living. Also I'm one of those Castlemanians who have been commuting for I guess 11 years into the city so I really wanted to some sort of way into a different part of the community here and, and I like that it's so grounded and just where we are, the base of the Angle, it's so beautiful. It's fantastic. And I can cycle here. You don't get much more local. <laughs> One of the realities of this year is that I think, well, at the time that I probably met Johan and Alex, like we were sort of more thinking bushfire and drought and hot weather. I guess that's the reality of climate change. It's extreme weather events and that could be fire and drought, but it's also dealing with two really wet seasons. Like it's not what we expected at all. But yeah, this is climate change too. So we talked a lot about bushfire plans. We loosely talked a bit about flood planning, but (laughs) and I was thinking at the time, "Mm, Alex put it forward actually, and it was like, well, we really did need to talk about flood planning. (laughs) Yeah, because we are dealing with the realities of what's happening here but it also we get our compost from Elmore so the compost supply was potentially threatened with the floods that happened there 
and now we actually can't get a compost supply because they can't access the property still because it's too wet. And that is one of the strengths of here is that it is diverse. So when one crop fails, there is another crop that might be able to pull us through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> But the emotional reality of that is, you know, yeah. you can kind of theorise it, but then when it's happening, it's like, ah, oh, yeah. no apricots. And yeah. a lot has changed on this farm over time. There were apples and the varieties have changed. Katie and Hugh made this an organic orchard, but I think now change and adaptation is just going to have to happen way more regularly and we have to just be prepared like these feelings that we're having this year we just yeah probably have to, like farmers have just got to get used to, to continuing to adapt more rapidly I guess that's hard <laughs> I found it hard yeah. just even rethinking this year like compared to what we did last season it's not last year on repeat at all we debated about whether we should have three hands holding a piece of fruit on the logo I think three of us wanted one hand and a piece of fruit and then Yon was like no I think we need three and so we went with the three and I'm so glad we did now because I've now realised that before any fruit gets to the market, it's usually been touched at least three times. So like every piece of fruit that comes off a tree, we take up into our packing shed and get the big crate and sort through piece by piece to put it into the first, seconds, thirds and then stuff that the cows are going to eat <laughs> from the creamery. My name is Rachel. I volunteered last season. I picked fruit and I became a bit obsessed with the landscape here, particularly looking at Lianganook and mm. sitting under the trees. I think I picked and I sat a lot. I sat and then I picked, etc. And then this season I was talking to the orchard keepers and they invited me to come along. I think from my background in I guess political activism and prior to moving to Castlemaine worked in community centres and ran events so I think my role here is as a orchard keeper but also to kind of look at the ways that the fruit and the collective can further embed itself I guess in different parts of the community. For me how people are engaging with the concepts of food in this case fruit and what it means to them and even simple things like recipes swapping and sharing is a beautiful thing and I think there's a very engaged community here but even looking towards going to markets and having people that aren't engaged with us as well and just chatting. We've got a whole stack of juice that we pressed at the end of last season which was the most beautiful process. We were well into the night in this sort of dark calmness pressing squashing fruit it just felt very beautiful it was a beautiful thing and definitely sold me on those sorts of processes I guess that can and you actually made a hand motion then of literally pressing the fruit like <laughs> pulling a lever so it's not like it's a mechanical it was a like crank there was a don't, crank you yeah. don't feed it into some electric thing that whizzes it up and yeah. then it's done it was silent except for the squeezing of the fruit wow. it was quite beautiful I can give you a bottle the squelchy sound yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then looking yeah, at lovely. the matter that came from that and thinking oh what, what can we do with this there's so many different things you can do with fruit apart from just eating it which is also very good yeah love eating it we had some pears that weren't that great but then ripened and then became great and I think not all fruit that we eat straight away tastes great and that's okay I think not everything's perfect but also that's the beauty of you've then got pears to eat in two months as opposed to in that massive season of 
glut where yeah. everything else has to be eaten immediately. Absolutely. Put the pears aside, though. They're yep. going to be They'll great. They'll keep in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. I kind of want to ask about the connection between your, your sense of your prior activism work and how that impacts your decision to come on board here, how the themes are relevant. I guess with my personal take on politics is about doing, not about talking, and getting involved in a collective and a co-op at the same time is a part of that process and working out how to work together, whether it's with one person or with a group of people or a larger group of people or your community, all of that talks to what I think is politics, is how to look at the future of the world we're living in and how to change it and do that with people and I think that's exciting and I guess that 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 really underpins a lot of the sort of social aspect of the orchard work for me obviously there's learning how to farm and learning about fruit but I think it's learning how to work in a collective of pretty inspirational people like they're it's amazing how hard people work and the various skills that they have that they don't even know they have so that's probably where the political activism comes in. It's in the act of doing, I would say. It is about the re-engagement of what we eat and how we eat it. So six months later, I went back to the farm and sat with Ingrid, Johan and Katie once more. The orchard keepers had decided to hang up their hats and we all thought it was important to talk about how and why it had come to that. Since we spoke, that was the start of summer and it was already pretty clear spring had been a disastrous spring for so many people, hadn't it? it so it, We'd had massive floods and lots of farmers were reporting distress about their capacity to produce anything. And you guys had already sort of come to the conclusion that you wouldn't be able to do the CSA boxes but since then, you've also decided that it's probably not the best thing to keep going with the orchard at all. So do you want to tell us about how you've come to this point in time? I think, yeah, having a bad spring and a bad season was part of it. Yeah, feeling, feeling down a little bit. And, and that also gave us a bit of time to reflect about what was going on and how we were doing. And I think at the end, well, for me, it's not so much the bad season, but more like the life conditions, all having really young kids and juggling the demands on the orchard and not living on the orchards. Even so, the, yeah, there's a lot of pleasure in learning and doing the work. The impact on our partners or on the kids or on other work that we could potentially do to have more income. Yeah, that balance was, yeah, was really hard. And I think when things become hard, then if your balance isn't very, very good, then you really, you really feel that. So that helps just reflect and have the conversation with everyone. I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was sort of similar to coming to the conclusion that we couldn't honour the CSA. And I think one of the team suggested, well, maybe we just can't do the CSA this year. And I think that hadn't occurred to me. And I think as soon as I heard that, I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> We can offer people a refund and we don't have to try and honour that commitment. And uh, yeah, and it's sort of similar with this decision as well. Once that option of maybe not doing our third year was put on the table, it was like, okay, oh, well, maybe we don't have to do this. We all felt very uncomfortable and it was a very difficult decision to come to individually. 
and even just to work out how we all felt about it, I think, because we'd made this commitment and we all thought we would be here for three years and we all have a, a very strong and significant relationship with this place and the other people that we've been working with. But I think really in the back of my mind was that question of how am I going to do this for another year? And yeah, we had a conversation right at the start. I remember we were meeting all the other co-op members and just talking about why we wanted to do this. And one of the things that we put forward was that challenge of, can we do this with small families? Like we've all got kids, five of the six of us have got kids under five. And that was one of the questions we were asking ourselves. Can we do this project that we all really want to do and we all feel really passionate about, but knowing that Maybe it would be pretty hard, but yeah, I had re seven months at the time and thought, well, parenting is going to get easier. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was pretty hard, like a lot of sleep deprived pruning and all of that. It's been great, but it's been a stretch and to try and fit in some paid work, given the seasons that we've had and haven't been able to make as much money as we probably had hoped. I mean, we never set out to make heaps of money, but... There's been pressures building, I guess. And it was so ambitious. When Hugh and I came back to the farm, our youngest kid was three and we co-parented. Yeah. And we lived here. And it was still hard. Just to put it in that context, mm. it was a very ambitious thing to, to try and do and it was obviously fuelled by that passion. It was hard for us as the landowners to hear that decision. But one of the things we've never doubted was the good intention and the passion that was driving the team. Like we never doubted that they gave it their all and really tried their absolute best. Yeah. It's like needed an extra two days a week in the and week. An extra or two hands. <laughs> yeah. An extra parent each. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. yeah. an on farm crash. <laughs> yeah, we did talk about it on the farm oh, crash early on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a notion of health and safety, I guess. If if we were more relaxed about kids driving tractors and <laughs> using circuitous so kids would love to drive tractors yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> we would probably have made it Johan and Alex and I had the experience of the first season which looking back seems like it was an amazing first season you know we had so many beautiful apricots and this year we were picking them in our hats you know so, yeah I think it's been a bit harder because potentially Meg just wanting to perhaps continue and I think we all went through our own individual processes as well and emotions came out at different times and even just processing where those emotions were coming from. I think part of it was just the bigger picture stuff and going, we really wanted this to work and we really want this small farm to survive and be able to provide local food into the future. And it's quite confronting when you have to look at that and go, how can that happen? Mm. Mm. But, you know, there's another opportunity and... Hopefully the next crew, we can share our learnings with them. And ours. And your, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, it took us a while to sort of come around to seeing it as an opportunity just because we also had to process our grief of that sudden change that we didn't have any control over. Like we were just confronted with that. So we went through all the things. Mm. And, and I think we had a really good dialogue through that and we were able to actually talk at different times about how everybody was going. So that was good. But we've genuinely come around to seeing it as an opportunity now. We know a whole lot more. These guys know a whole lot more. We've watched how they've tried to do it, which was really different to how Ant did it. I was going to um, say from a one-man operation yeah, to a yeah. six-person team. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we genuinely have learnt a lot. And though there has been a lot of grief and sadness about it, I don't feel like we've lost anything or it's been a failure. Mm. I don't know. Do you, do you guys feel like that? 
No, and I think all of us are still keen, although we won't be holding the lease, we're all still very keen to come back out here and support the new people if they'll want us, in a way smaller capacity, but to come out here regularly and meet with them and stay connected and yeah, that was one of the things about. I was the saddest about was losing them all like, <laughs> yeah. personally as people as people yeah, yeah losing them from the farm it's just yeah. been too beautiful I can't look at them now or I'll cry oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was that was yeah that was a real loss and also Katie for you I guess when they first made the announcement your mind would have been racing as oh can Hugh and I now manage the orchard until we find someone to no no <laughs> <laughs> No, one of the things we're really clear about and that we've been clear about from the beginning and we still are is that we're not in that period of our lives anymore. We're not going back on the tools. We're looking at a whole lot of different models now, so it's not necessarily that we need to find somebody to lease in the same way that they have. We'd be open to employing somebody or maybe a combination or... When in Ant's first year, we employed him and he was a trainee and we did profit share. So there's heaps of options for how we manage the orchard and we've learned a bit more now about what does work and what doesn't work. It obviously works better, I think, for people to not have little kids. <laughs> but that, again, that's up to their family situation and how they manage that. But we've seen how challenging that makes it. And also the not living here thing makes mm. it really hard as well. So... Because Ant lived on site, didn't Ant he? Ant lived on site, yeah. yeah. And, and that's a possibility for somebody else to do that. So we're open to lots of opportunities. And, you know, in the back of our mind, we could pull the orchard out or we could let Tess just graze the cows through the orchard. The risk that we're managing is unmanaged fruit. Mm. Yeah. So you can't just let fruit grow and drop on the ground mm. and not look after it because you're just creating potential fruit fly issue for entire region. Yeah. That's right. So that we just that's the responsibility we have. But how we prevent that happening? There's a lot of different pathways. It is such an amazing opportunity for somebody who wants to be an orchardist. Yeah. Like that opportunity is is really there. So we've decided it's always been three-year leases up until now, but we've condensed. There's four years left of this model. So we've decided to offer it as a four-year lease. Because one of the things that we know is that you get two shit years and then you get a few good years. You know, you've Mm. actually got to be there for the long term to experience the overall goodness. The picture (laughs) when it's averaged is really different. But we so we completely get how hard it is to go through those hard years because we've been through many, many hard years. And that then gets balanced. What keeps you going is that then you have a good year. And so it's really sad that these guys they just didn't have the capacity to get through the hard years so that they could get the reward. And Mm. I really get what you're saying about Megan Bry. It would have been so lovely for them to have Mm. that. Because that's your reward. Is that you get to grow all this beautiful organic fruit and and just share it with the world. Yeah. And I guess this model is that you're the landowners and when you own the land, you do invest long-term in fruit trees that take 10 years to mature. And it's hard for someone with a three-year lease to invest in a 10-year prospect. Yeah, and, and of... unreasonable to expect them to yeah. because it's not their land. That's one of the drawbacks of this model. We're really lucky that we've got this grant, World Wildlife Fund Innovate to Regenerate Grant, which is funding us to look at that question specifically for our community, but there'll be learnings for other people because there's so many people in this space at the moment trying to figure out how to do farming and farm succession differently. So, yeah, we're really lucky that we've got some money to work with a consultant to unpack where we're at 
now and where we might go after the nine years finish. Do you want to talk about that a bit more, like what you're thinking currently or...? Oh, we have no idea. Okay. Yeah, we genuinely have no idea. It's like there's all these sort of floating bubbles of possibilities for what this could become, but there's so many stakeholders. So we're, we're really lucky that the Orchard Keepers are involved in that grant process and will stay involved. So they're really key stakeholders in that conversation. Their experience is yeah. invaluable to informing the whole model on where we go next. And then there's me and Hugh, and then there's our kids. In the traditional succession model, this is going to be mm. their farm. Mm. So their voice will be part of this conversation as well. And then there's all our other lessees as well. And we're working with the Open Food Network who do all this amazing research with food systems. So they'll also be informing our conversation with what they can find out about what other people are doing. Because you're really not the only ones thinking about this stuff. We are not. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to get your perspective. So what could have made this work? How can we imagine a mm. different kind of model that could make it work for you guys that really wanted to make it work? And I guess also looking at a more climate insecure future, farming is one of the things that will be impacted most by changing weather systems. And you actually do need a really long view. As you were saying, there's always ups and downs in farming, wet seasons and dry seasons, but with climate change, it's going to be more intense. It is, and it, it makes preservation of family farms for want of a better way of Rather than it, corporate. Rather than big corporate farming, which, and it's not, that's all bad and Family farms is all good at all. It's way more nuanced than that. But, you know, we know Australian farmers, and, and this is true all over the world, are ageing. The average age of farmers is advancing all the time and that family farms or smaller farms are disappearing. And sometimes they're being absorbed into corporate farms, but very often they're not. That land is just not being used to produce food anymore. And so over It's being time, subdivided and built on. and Absolutely, turned into lifestyle properties. And so mm. as a society, we're becoming more and more reliant on corporate farming. And corporate farming has its own set of vulnerabilities that actually in the long term make us more vulnerable to climate change. So it's really important that we maintain this type of small-scale, regenerative, community-based, community-connected. You know, there's a very small distance between where the food's produced and where it's eaten in our model. So it's really important to try and come up with solutions for this. That's what we're all sort of working towards. Because ultimately those corporate farms, they're, they're a business. They're running a business. And if the model isn't making them enough money... It might even be making them heaps of money, but if it's not enough money, they'll mm. shut the whole thing down. Or And generally, mm. it is making them money, mm. and it's much easier to make money at that scale. That's one of the big challenges that we face at our scale, is that compared to them, we're super inefficient. But the reason they're inefficient, Tess put this really beautifully the other day, is because they're completely reliant on fossil mm. fuels. They're borrowing their efficiency from future generations, and they're one of the biggest contributors to climate change. So that's not a sustainable long-term system. And in fact, it's making everything worse. But here today, in a landscape of increasing interest rates and cost of living pressures, they're the ones producing affordable food. I'm sort of hopeful that the council, this is what I imagine anyway, with council laws changing, that if people could bring a tiny house here or something like that, it's a beautiful place to live. 
And we all said, if we could find a 10-year younger version of ourselves, yeah. <laughs> all individually, we would, you know, take that lease on our yeah. own. Yeah. And, and we'd love to do that. Yeah. yeah. 10 years yeah. younger or 10 years older? We mainly talk about 10 years younger. <laughs> yeah, I reckon <laughs> you know, But probably 10 years older would, would work too. Yeah. Knowing I could do it with Bjorn and Alex and Terry at the time was really motivating. And one of the hard things is going, you know, we were creative, driven, hardworking people. <laughs> and we still couldn't quite make it work. But I think I was still identifying with myself maybe 10 years ago when I could put my whole self into it, something. And with kids, you can't put your whole self in because you've got other dependence. And that's a kind of constant give in, pull back. Mm. It's like on a, on a daily basis. So mm. that's the, the hard bit. The other part, we, sometimes we talk about farming being a public job or publicly funded job. And, and I think if, if that part was true, even though we had the CSA, which is a bit halfway there, but if we had something like that, whether it's like government or whether we could create that locally, then that would make a big difference yeah. as well. Yeah. If we didn't have that constant pressure about the income. Yeah. Not mm. talking about big income, but yeah. Yeah, but, but, thing, but a living income. Yeah, yeah. minimum so wage. That, <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, so that would release that pressure. You'd feel more valued if that was the case. So if we had something like universal basic income, you guys yeah. would have been so much more able to actually put more of yourself in here because you wouldn't have had to work other jobs necessarily or yeah. spread yourself too thin. And I guess ultimately the idea of the CSA is that that supplies you with that, but it was such a bad season that you really felt like you couldn't even give your CSA subscribers enough. Even with a CSA model, it's often based on the market price. Mm. Sometimes people do it with like, give us one hour or two hours of your hourly wage every week to pay for the food. And then that's a different model that you know. Sure, so people are actually investing in the farm in terms of supplying a wage rather than expecting a certain amount back based on how much an apple costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's a lot more equal in that sense. I give one hour of my work week to the food one. Mm. So yeah, using different models would mm. make it more just or workable. Yeah, just finding ways that that can be managed because the management of those models just takes a lot of... Yeah, that's another job in itself, is just managing the model. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's another thing we've really learned or are experiencing as part of the co-op model is that viability, none of our farmers want to be millionaires, but they need a living wage. Mm. And how you make that work when you're competing against cheap food all our farmers, they're producing amazing, organic, beautiful, nutrient-dense food. They can charge a lot for that. You could just sell it all into a niche market mm-hmm. and make as much money as possible out of it. But they are all also driven by providing food for local people that's affordable. So there's that tension all the time within their businesses as well of really mm-hmm. wanting the food to be accessible by local people no matter their income and so that puts extra pressure on how to be viable at this very small scale. The other big issue in there is we mentioned efficiency before. We're tiny and it is inefficient, it just is. So you can work all the time to be as efficient as possible and I do feel like we have a responsibility to do that, to be as efficient as we can and there's always more to learn about that and of course the longer you've been doing it, the more efficient you become. So that's the other challenge of bringing new people 
in is that you spend the first months, years learning the job. So there's a lot stacked against it in that way, but that's one of our roles we feel like, you and I, is that we've got heaps of experience. We can sit here and at least hold the knowledge that it is possible to do things efficiently and it can be an interesting line for us to walk to say, you can do it this way. <laughs> and do you want any help? And You, know. you do that very well. <laughs> and in terms of autonomy, I think as well, like the, the level of autonomy and trust that we had from you was really good and impressive. And yeah. yeah. I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. We had a good model with my dad. My dad played that role for us. He is still here based on the farm, but he handed over responsibility to us, but he was there if we needed him. That was a good role model for us to, yeah, try and offer that same thing. We're still learning, of course, to mentor well. Yeah, well, I would imagine it could be very challenging for farmers who've worked their own land for decades to let go of control and watch other people treat their trees in ways that are not exactly how they do it. There have been challenging parts of that, but at the same time it was easier than we thought it would be. That was the anticipation of that was the hardest thing. And in fact, as part of this experience of these guys leaving, we've kind of had a, a rebirth of our sense of feeling of responsibility for the trees and the soil. In a way, we're feeling like we probably handed over a bit too much responsibility because of where we were at when we started the model we were exhausted yeah. <laughs> so in a way we kind of went here you go it's yours now bye <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and because we teach fruit growing as well so we're always upskilling ourselves for mm. that and we've actually come back with a really renewed sense of enthusiasm and excitement we just learned a whole lot of new stuff about nutrition programs for fruit trees so mm. When I said before, we're pretty clear about not being on the tools, that's true, but we're also really excited and enthusiastic to work with the new team about how to put a really solid nutrition program in place for the trees. Yeah, so it's an opportunity for us as well. So there you go. That was the Orchard Keepers, Johan and Ingrid, along with Katie Finlay, who are all part of the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. At the time of the release of this episode, the Orchard is looking for someone new to manage and love it. There are also so many other farming or food production opportunities that could potentially happen on that land and within the co-op, as mentioned in the last episode. Keep your ears peeled for the next two episodes, where we stay on the farm and talk to Tess, who runs a creamery, and Mel, who you might remember from season one when I spoke to her and Sass about gung-ho growers, their vegetable growing business. Sass has subsequently moved on from the farm and it's interesting to hear Mel talk about the big changes and there are also some lovely small chats with the people who've been working with Mel. So stay tuned for both of those episodes coming up. Links and notes about the show are on the episode page on the website and don't forget to get your saltgrass ethical t-shirts, hoodies and more at saltgrasspodcast.com just click on the merch link for those of you listening on the radio please note that you can listen to all episodes of saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app or at saltgrasspodcast.com you can follow us on most of the socials and you could subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show this program was made possible with support from main fm and the community broadcasting foundation 
Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, 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 yeah. Salt, 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.